If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to uh, Philippians, the New Testament book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians 3 today, Philippians 3. And uh, if this is your first Sunday at Faith Lutheran, you have come at a great Sunday, because as Jeff said at the top of the service, by the way, my name's Brian. I'm the pastor here. As Jeff said at the top of the service, uh, we are beginning a brand new sermon series, uh, and uh, we've been trying to do it the last couple weeks, start this new sermon series, and uh, I had a little bike accident, and so we've had uh, uh, some other folks filling in. And uh, can we just say thank you to Jeff and John for preaching the last couple weeks? I sent these guys a text on Friday night coming back from the emergency room saying, yeah, I don't think I can preach this weekend, and they both are like, I'll do it, you know, just kind of like that. And I'm just like, I get to be a part of that church, the church where people just step up. And I just want to say thanks to you and John uh, for stepping up. And so many of you who, uh, that's just who you are as, as Jesus followers. You just step up. You see a need or you hear of a need and you just step up. And so today we're starting this new sermon series um, uh, uh, and, and we're going to spend the next couple weeks uh, really looking at uh, what it means to be better together. And the sermon series, uh, as Jeff said, it's inspired by this book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery uh, by Ian Morgan Cron and Susan Stable. And so as I read this book about a year ago, it just really inspired me. And I thought, you know what? I, I think we as a congregation uh, would benefit uh, from some of uh, the, the work in here. And, and Ian Cron, if you've started the book, he was basically a burned out, very successful, but a burned out pastor, Episcopalian uh, priest, in fact. And so there he was one day sitting on the proverbial couch of his spiritual mentor, a 70-year-old Benedictine monk in the Catholic Church, just kind of pouring out his heart, saying, I am burned out, I am worn out, I'm not sure where to go next. And so they had this conversation, this dialogue that I want to read to you real quickly, and this is what Brother Dave, the Benedictine monk, uh, says uh, to Ian Cron. He says, most folks assume they understand who they are when they actually don't. They don't question the lens through which they see the world, where it came from, how it shaped their lives, or even if the vision of reality it gives them is distorted or true. Even more troubling, most people aren't aware of how things that have helped them survive as kids are now holding them back as adults. They're asleep. And then Kron says, asleep? I echoed, my face registering confusion. Brother Dave briefly gazed at the ceiling and frowned. Now he was the one searching for the right combination of words that would unlock the answer that seemed to a seemingly simple question. And then here's the quote. What we don't know about ourselves can and will hurt us, not to mention others, he said, pointing his finger at me and then himself. As long as we stay in the dark about how we see the world and the wounds and the beliefs that have shaped who we are, we are prisoners of our history. We'll continue to going through this life on autopilot, doing things that hurt and confuse ourselves and everyone around us. Eventually, we become so accustomed to making the same mistakes over and over that are in our lives that they lull us to sleep. We need to wake up. And so this sermon series is about waking up. 
Waking Up to Who God Made Each One of Us to Be. And I thought, well, let's call this sermon series Wake Up. But I thought that might be a little bit, I don't know, just offensive or crass or something like that. But that's really what this sermon series is about. It's about waking up. Waking up to really who the the person that God has called you to be and your family and your loved ones and your coworkers and those people that you interact with uh, on a very regular basis. Have you ever been around someone who doesn't have good uh, self-awareness, right? They say things, they do things, and it's just like, oh, that's painful. You have no idea how offensive you are, right? And we we usually just kind of keep going on and on and on, but here's the deal, We all have a certain level of uh, uh, self-awareness that we're not aware of, right? So sometimes we are the ones who are saying and doing the other things that make other people cringe and go, do you know what you just said or what your behavior, how how I'm taking all that in? So it's an opportunity to wake up for the next few weeks over the summer for the next uh, nine weeks. We're going to use this tool called the Enneagram. Everybody say Enneagram. Enneagram. Yeah, the Enneagram has been around a long time. It's, it really is a personality assessment tool, much like the Myers-Briggs or the DISC assessment or the Big Five. You know, there's lots and lots of different personality uh, assessments. And we're just going to use the Enneagram because I think there's some really good stuff here uh, to guide us uh, through our uh, nine weeks together. There's nine components uh, or nine uh, uh, types in the Enneagram. Uh, there's the perfectionist the helper, the performer, the romantic, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. And today we're going to look at uh, Enneagram 1 today, Uh, the the, the idealist, the perfectionist, sometimes it's known. And as we go through our time this morning, my prayer is that we're going to wake up a little bit. We're going to understand something a little bit more about ourselves, about our lives, and and maybe our loved ones, and discover just a little bit more about who God made you to be and how God is inviting you to serve in the world. So let's pray. If you're in Philippians 3, we're going to get there in just a moment. God, thank you for another beautiful day, for time together as your people. Lord, wake us up. Speak to us. Encourage us. Challenge us. And help us to hear some good news today, Lord, because we need some good news. Because as Jeff said this morning, you are God and we are not. We need you, God. We need you to come and renew us. Invite us, Lord, to become better versions of who you've created us to be. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So you probably see these flags I've got up here, and uh, I like to use visual aids from time to time in a a sermon, and I was trying to think of the most obvious visual aid. You might be thinking about these uh, nine different types of Enneagrams, and you might think to yourself, well, which is the best one, right? That's what we all want to be, is we want to be the best personality type. And the answer is all nine are good 
uh, personality types, but all nine are also bad personality types. They all have their positives and negatives. So a healthy, uh, and I've got a green flag, green means go, right? We all know green means go. There's a healthy version of each of the nine personality types. And then there's an unhealthy version of the uh, nine personality types. And well, I don't know. I stop at a stoplight and they've got the yellow flags. I guess it means caution. And maybe it's somewhere between the red and the green. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I, I think it's really important to understand that each personality type in and of itself is not inherently good or inherently bad. They are uh, healthy and less healthy or unhealthy. And so um, we're, we're going to kind of uh, wade through all that uh, together with these flags. We'll see how that works this morning with broken ribs. So in the 1920s, many of you know uh, that uh, Nelson Mandela was a young man. Uh, or, or he was born in the, in the early uh, 20th century. And he, he grew up, um, uh, his parents were illiterate in South Africa, and uh, he was a cattle herder and helped on the family farm. And when Nelson Mandela was nine years old, his dad died, and so his mom sent him off to a Methodist boarding school. And uh, that boarding school opened many, many doors for Nelson Mandela throughout his life. Think about this. Here's a, 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 a cattle herder family, farmer that all of a sudden now Nelson Mandela is able to read and to write and uh, become very educated, graduate from high school. And then after he graduated from high school, Nelson Mandela enrolled in an all-black uh, South African uh, university. I mean, it's just a great story uh, of a young man who grew up and uh, leveraged education to do something with his life. And in the 1940s, uh, as Mandela was studying at the university uh, in South Africa, uh, that's the time when the apartheid uh, system came into play. And apartheid, uh, those of us older people uh, know that apartheid is really an institution of segregation between races. It's institutional segregation. And apartheid uh, became an institution across a pretty large swath of southern Africa, even beyond South Africa. And Nelson Mandela saw the wrongs of this institutional segregation, this institutional racism. And of course, it was uh, the white people who were the uh, people of power. And so as he's going through college, he became convinced and he experienced racism firsthand that the best way to move forward to help his people, uh, to help all of South Africans, uh, was to go to law school. And so that's what he did. This uh, uh, former cow herder farmer went on to law school. And he became very involved in politics and opposition politics against the system of apartheid. And Nelson Mandela, as you might imagine, he was arrested several times because he was uh, protesting against the injustice and the wrong uh, thinking and the wrong institution of apartheid, of legal segregation. So he, uh, as he, uh, he was very much influenced by Mahatma Gandhi. He wasn't one of these radicals who was going out and doing all sorts of violence, but he truly believed in change and transformation through peaceful demonstration. 
1962, Nelson Mandela was arrested for uh, being uh, on charges of treason that he was trying to overthrow the South African government. And Nelson Mandela spent the next 27 years in prison. And many of those years, he was doing hard labor uh, with a hammer, breaking up limestone into little pebbles in isolation out on an island uh, off the coast of South Africa. And throughout his time in prison for those 27 years, he continued to speak up for the poor, for those who are suffering from injustice, for those uh, who are struggling at the hands of those who are in power. And by the late 1980s, again, those of you who are old enough to remember, you probably remember that there was international pressure to let Nelson Mandela go. And so in 1990, Mandela was set free from prison. In 1994, when South Africa had their first election, he was elected president of South Africa. And, you know, I think it would have been really easy for Mandela to say, you know what, I'm going to get those guys who stuck me in jail for 27 years. Those people who abused me, those people who were so horrible to me. But what Mandela and a group of people did is they formed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they said, we're going to move forward, not beating people up and punishing people, but we're going to walk together into the future for the better of all people. He took the long view. And Mandela was offered a second term in office to run again. And he said, now I've done five years. It's time for somebody else to do it. And he spent the rest of his years until he died in 2013 being a statesman for uh, South Africa and traveling across the continent of Africa and even around the world. And over the course of Mandela's life, he was awarded uh, over 260 different honors and awards, including the Nobel Peace Prize. Because Mandela was a guy who saw the injustices of the world and said, that's wrong. We need to do something about it. We need to, do, we need to fix it. We need to make it right. And I share that story with you uh, this morning about Nelson Mandela because he might just be the poster child for the Enneagram One, the perfectionist, the idealist, sometimes also uh, known as, as the one who uh, is paying attention to all the details because they want to get it right. In fact, that's the motto of the idealist, the Enneagram One type, is they, they see wrongs in the world. They see black and white, and they, and they, and they want to get rid of, of what's wrong and make it right. And they have incredible amounts of energy to make it right. Now, I could have shared with you a negative example of a, a perfectionist, and there's plenty of them. Many people think that Osama bin Laden is a, a Enneagram type one as well, but I just thought that wouldn't be a very inspiring story this morning, right? But Osama bin Laden, just real quickly, think about it. He was a guy who uh, saw perceived injustices of the world, and he saw right and wrong, and he wanted to make things right in his mind. And so meticulously and with detail, he went about destroying and bringing great amounts of death and destruction on the earth. And I don't want to spend any more time talking about uh, Osama bin Laden, but I do want to let you know and remind you that there is a healthy uh, personality type of a perfectionist and an unhealthy perfectionist. 
You know, long ago in ancient times, uh, there were a group of people that were the perfectionists, a religious group. And they were the people who just thought about God's word all the time. And early on, when God gave Moses the law, they studied the law and said, ooh, this is really good stuff. Let's unpack this. Let's study this. And they were not uh, satisfied with just 10 commandments, right? They wanted to really chew on it and know what these commandments were all about. And so what they did is they studied and they argued and they debated about these different laws. And over time, uh, this group uh, we, of course, know as the Pharisees, they created uh, something called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is really a commentary, an oral uh, commentary on the Mosaic law. And so they, they developed all these rules, and, and they, they poured over the law with a fine-tooth comb. And things started to go from uh, uh, healthy to caution, look out, look out, look out. And then they created a document called the Talmud because they just, they just kind of needed to keep going. They really kept going with, what, what, what does the law mean? So by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, the Pharisees, who, who, who were not these, these people who were evil, these people uh, who were out to get everyone that didn't have bad intentions, they cared so much about God's word. But they just went off track. They took it too far. And so they, as, as an Enneagram type one, as perfectionists, they took the perfection of understanding and knowing God's word and saying, you know what, God, we think this is really good and important for us to study. And they turned it gradually over time into something that was destructive. You know, perhaps there is uh, no Pharisee more famous and who uh, d d represents the Enneagram uh, more as it relates to uh, being a perfectionist than Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was a Pharisee. He was a guy that just loved God's word and studied God's word, and he would dice it and splice it, and he would argue with people about God's word because he wanted to know everything about God's word. But over time, Paul began to realize that it was corrosive and it was doing some bad things in his life, but he lived the life of someone who truly uh, strove to be a perfectionist, an idealist, digging into the details. And so Paul wrote a letter um, that we're going to read now uh, in Philippians 3. We call it Philippians 3. And Paul's writing this letter to kind of explain this idea of who he is. He's trying to let everybody know who he is. So if you've got your Bibles, Philippians 3, beginning with verse 4. Paul says this to the church in Philippi. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the Christian church, as for righteousness based on the law faultless. I mean, Paul kind of thought a lot of himself, right? He has no trouble telling uh, the church that if there was anybody who followed the law, it was him. He says, I was faultless. But the thing about Paul 
is early on, uh, he was living in this world of being an unhealthy Enneagram type one, unhealthy uh, uh, Pharisee, to the point where uh, he persecuted Christians. He persecuted anybody who stood in his way. And it says in scripture that there was Paul on the day when Stephen was stoned saying, good job, you killed that Christian. I mean, that's the kind of guy Paul was. Somebody who's just like, yeah, he's going against the law. Let's get rid of him. But then Paul had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And what happens so often in people's lives, and we're going to look at this time and time again, as we look at various people in the New Testament throughout Scripture, when they encountered Jesus, they moved from an unhealthy uh, personality type to a healthy personality type. And now to be clear, it doesn't always happen just like that, right? Most of the time, as you read the New Testament, Paul is doing a whole lot of this. He's somewhere in between healthy and unhealthy. And, and if, uh, if, if, I don't know, I just take great encouragement in that. Because I don't think most of us, and I certainly don't think myself, is either green or red. I think most of us live in that world of yellow, that world of somewhere between being healthy and unhealthy as it relates to our personality. But Paul, as, as someone who just strove to, to, to live um, in, in, uh, in, in following the law of God, he came to this place when he met Jesus, and he came to recognize he was done. Before the, the, the perfect God, before the perfect Jesus Christ, he had a choice. He had an option. Deny Christ or Submit. Deny or submit. And Paul was so overwhelmed with the grace and love of Jesus Christ on that encounter that he bent his knee and he submitted to Jesus Christ. And that's really when the journey for Paul shifted from being unhealthy to a healthy perfectionist. So this is what Paul writes uh, or continues to write. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul does a 180 turn, if you hear it here. You know what the first part of the reading is, man, I was such a great Jew. I was such a, a, a reverent Pharisee. But you know, the moment I met Jesus, I began, I began to see everything in my life was nothing but garbage, rubbish. He says, I, I don't need any of that old lifestyle anymore. And Paul surrendered. You know, it, it reminds me of the old saying, you can either be right or you can be married, right? You ever heard that one before? Or you can either be right and have a relationship with your kids. You can either be right and get along with your coworkers. And I think the Apostle Paul would say you can either be right or have a relationship with God. If you can have a relationship with God, 
you're going to have to submit. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. Now, I want to be very clear. Paul did not stop being uh, an Enneagram one, a perfectionist. He moved from being an unhealthy one to a healthy one and leveraging the problems of uh, being an, uh, a perfectionist and using them to do really good things for the church. And so Paul continues uh, in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold uh, of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet having been taken hold of, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's like, I'm not there yet. God isn't finished with me. I've got work to do. And he's got this incredible passion in his heart, in his mind, and in his life. He says, I'm going to leverage who God made me to be a perfectionist and how I see the world, how I see people, uh, how I see the church, and I'm going to make it better. You know, the Enneagram one, if they've got a motto, it's let's make it better. We're going to make it better. And that was Paul's motto. Let's make it better. And aren't you glad that the apostle Paul uh, as a perfectionist was the guy leading the charge in the early church? Because the, the, the perfectionist, they're the one who walks into a room, they see a crooked picture on the wall, and they can't help themselves. They go over and straighten up the picture. And they start walking around the room, fixing things that are out of place. And they've just got this incredible amount of energy. They can't stop moving, right? They got to just fix things, fix things, fix things. And that's what exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He would see things that were wrong, and, and he, he just became uh, absolutely uh, focused uh, on, on making things better, on helping people to understand what it means to be a Christ follower. They're the, they're the energizer bunnies of the world, these perfectionists, right? The rest of us look at the perfectionists and go, where do they get their energy, right? They're like a rocket ship with uh, endless amounts of energy, and they go, and they go, and they go, and that was the Apostle Paul. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, he wrote half the New Testament. I mean, aren't you glad he was a perfectionist? I mean, he just wanted the church to know, we've got to make it better, folks. We've got to do things better. And the Apostle Paul was absolutely focused on making disciples, and nobody ever came to the Apostle Paul and said, hey, we've made enough disciples. And Paul's like, all right, let's go. We're done. No. Paul said, we're, we're not done. We're never done making disciples until the whole world knows. Now get out there and keep going. That's the Apostle Paul. And the more you learn about his life, the beatings, the shipwrecks, uh, the arrests, the amount of time he spent in prison, I mean, you couldn't knock the guy down. He's like, remember the old weeble wobbles, but they won't fall down? That's Paul. That's the perfectionist. You knock them down, they get, get, get right back up, and they go, and they go, and they go, because they got work to do, because they got to make the world better. And Paul says, as Christ followers, you need to get better. I love perfectionists. They are amazing people when they're healthy. 
But a perfectionist, an idealist who is not healthy can drive you crazy. They will nitpick you to death because they will see all the details in your life that's wrong. They'll come to church and they'll notice all the things that were wrong at church on Sunday morning, right? A, a, a perfectionist, uh, they're going to walk around the office uh, at the company and then go, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. When they're unhealthy, they will drive you crazy because that's the way God made them to be, to see these incredible details that most of the rest of us don't see and to point them out. And when they are healthy, they can change the world like Nelson Mandela and certainly the Apostle Paul. But when they are unhealthy, man, that's rough, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody know a perfectionist, an Enneagram type one? Whoa! God bless you and your families and your coworkers. You're either tearing it up or tearing them down. And so I want to close this morning by just sharing a few words for those of you who might be an Enneagram One, a perfectionist, an idealist, number one, thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for seeing the things that the rest of us don't see. Thank you for all your attention to the detail that the rest of us don't see. Thank you for how God made you to pay attention to those details and have such extraordinary passion to get things done, to make the world a better place. I mean, all of us, aren't you glad uh, that it's uh, the perfectionist who designed the aircraft that we fly in? I mean, I, I, I mean if, if you're not an Enneagram One, a perfectionist, I mean, you show up at the airport, eh, it's got a couple wings, missing a few sheet metal screws. I think it'll fly, right? I mean, who wants to get in that airplane, right? Nobody. I mean, our Enneagram Ones, our perfectionists, our idealists, they look at an aircraft design and they design it meticulously and they make sure everything is right about it. That's who you, some of you are. I want to say thank you. Use your gifts to make the world a better place, to make those around you uh, better human beings. But the second thing I want to say to you Enneagram One types, you perfectionists, is the rest of us don't see the details that you see. It's not that we're trying to be lazy. It's not that we're trying to not care. It's, it's not that we're trying to get out of anything. We just don't see what you see. You have a gift. You see things that the rest of us don't see. We're not trying to be obstinate. We're not trying to be difficult. We're not trying to be all those things that you think in your mind of what's wrong with you, right? We know. We know that this is frustrating for you. But we truly do not see the world the way you see. We don't see the details that you see. And number three, we want to help you grow. We want to help you move from being an unhealthy perfectionist to a healthy perfectionist, idealist. 
And one of the great things about scripture is that God invites us to move from unhealth toward health through his word. And, you know, there's probably no greater stumbling block, obstacle, um, uh, difficulty for an Enneagram One, a perfectionist, than when they read God's word and they come across the word grace. They come across the word grace. Grace simply means a gift. It's something that we don't deserve. And for a perfectionist, they got to earn stuff. They feel like they've got to, uh, like the Apostle Paul, like the Pharisees, like they got to do stuff. And this is the, the good news, not just for the Enneagram Ones, but for all of us today. It's not about what we do, but it's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Paul, the poster child for perfection, wrote in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, here's the guy who followed the letter uh, to the last to the nth degree. And he said, everybody sinned. Everybody before a perfect and holy God is short. And so what you perfectionists need to hear is you're not perfect. And you will never be perfect on your own efforts as long as you live in this world. And I know some of you were like, what? Right? I got to be perfect because I see the things that are wrong. But what you need to know is no amount of human effort can ever make you perfect. But the good news is you can be perfect. You can be perfect through surrendering to Jesus Christ. That's the good news is that we can all be perfect. We can be in a perfect relationship with God through surrendering our lives. And I know for you perfectionists, you just don't get that. And I know that's really difficult for you to hear. But I want to encourage you this morning to really chew on this idea of grace. Because God sent his son into the world, a man who was truly perfect, without fault, without sin. And scripture tells us that God brought him into the world to become a perfect sacrifice for those, for all of us who are with sin. And it's known as the great exchange. God takes our sinful lives and exchanges them, uh, our lives, with the perfect life of Jesus Christ so that we can be in relationship with God. The theological term is propitiation. You can write that in your Bibles this morning. Propitiation. It's that idea that Christ came for us to do what we can't do for ourselves. And the last thing I'll say, perfectionists. This grace isn't just extended to you, but you need to extend it to other people. Because not only do you have a hard time receiving grace, the grace of God, you have a hard time giving it to others as well. Because you just want to fix them, right? You see everything that's wrong. You need God's grace. And you need to offer the grace of God to others. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that you have made each one of us unique and special and wonderful. And in your image... 
But God, sin has messed things up. Sin has messed our lives up. Sin has messed this world up. And so, Lord, as we we continue to worship you today, thank you for your grace, that gift that you have come to us through Jesus Christ on the cross and done what we have, we could not do for ourselves, made us in right relationship with you. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship you today, speak to us, encourage us, and invite us to live in your grace as we offer grace to others. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.